the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. If we look to the answer as to why for so many years we achieved so much, prospered as no other people on earth, it was because here in this land we unleashed the energy and individual genius of man to a greater extent than has ever been done before. Those who say that we're in a time when there are no heroes, they just don't know where to look. The sloping hills of Arlington National Cemetery, with its row upon row of simple white markers, bearing crosses or stars of David, they add up to only a tiny fraction of the price that has been paid for our freedom. As for the enemies of freedom, those who are potential adversaries, they will be reminded that peace is the highest aspiration of the American people. We will negotiate for it, sacrifice for it. We will not surrender for it now or ever. We are Americans. France Authority on AM 1420. The answer. Yes, indeed it is. And we continue now at nine minutes after 10 o'clock on this Wednesday, the 26th morning of the month of December in the year of our Lord, 2018. Literally the year of our Lord as we celebrate his birth yesterday. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Hope you had a wonderful, blessed, and holy Christmas, a spiritual and uh, a wonderful Hanukkah and whatever else you may be celebrating. Uh, we do celebrate Christmas here, and uh, and I really, really hope you had as wonderful of a time as I did. But back to the job at hand. As a matter of fact, this is a pretty good time to bring Ryan Morrow. It's always a good time to talk to Ryan Morrow, but in particular now, because um, we've been getting an education in religion and in biblical uh, uh, stories, including in this, and especially the book of Exodus from Ryan Morrow ever since his documentary, The Mountain of Moses, uh, came out. And it's available now on YouTube and it's all over the internet and it's just drawing tremendous amounts of praise. So we'll bring Ryan Morrow in to talk a little bit more about that as well as the ongoing uh, tensions being escalated in the Middle East as a result of President Trump's decision to pull out of Syria. So, Ryan Morrow, good to have you back, my friend, National Security Analyst for the Clarion Project, Director of the Clarion Intelligence Network. Good to have you back. Merry Christmas to you. How are you, sir? Hey, I'm doing well. Merry Christmas. Thank you Merry very much. Yes. yes, indeed, belated, and that it's still Christmas season. I mean, it's, it, to me, it's always still Merry Christmas until uh, New Year. New Year's gets here. After January first, I stop saying Merry Christmas, but right now it's still the yeah, Christmas that's season. How I see it. Yeah, why yeah, why not? Uh Ryan, before we get into the details of the news of the day, which of course is the uh Syria decision and uh how it might impact the United States here in the homeland, that's what everybody always tries to uh to figure out. I wanted to just kind of follow up uh since you released your uh your incredible uh documentary 
on uh, on finding the mountain of Moses, Mount Sinai, in Saudi Arabia. You and I had a, a very long discussion about that last week. I know you've been making the radio rounds since then and opening so many eyes about what an incredibly important uh, discovery you have made. Um, how has this uh, reception been for you? I mean, did you expect this when you put this, uh, this work together? You've been doing it for almost two years. You finally got it done, uh, and now it is time to show it to the world. Did you expect the kind of reception you're getting, Ryan? Uh, not to be this overwhelmingly positive. I was not expecting that. Um, because you could do something completely neutral that's not controversial at all, and somehow there'll always be trolls and negative people, you know, at least like 10%. Here, the, really, uh, negative comments have come from like 1% or 2% of people. Um, and so overwhelmingly positive reception. Uh, right now we're at 163,000 views, which is not, that's not a lot for like a music video, but for something of this nature, uh, related to biblical archaeology, related to um, finding evidence uh, to verify the biblical account. That's a lot, especially for just, I think it's been about a week. Um, so that's amazing, and uh, Glenn Beck has been really, uh, just really supportive. I mean, he called the film phenomenal, and he said it's a game-changer for mankind. Uh, because of uh, really the repercussions of how of people seeing this and realizing that the biblical account is historically accurate. I think everybody who sees this is coming away with a similar point of view. Uh, and I'll tell people once again to get to your uh, your website, which is and correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, the actual site to find this is uh, Sinai. Is it Sinai in Saudi Arabia? It's Sinai in Arabia. Sinai in Arabia. Thank you. Of course, I uh, had you on and I went to it then, but I'm trying to remember it now. SinaiinArabia.com. You can watch the full video there, as well as a lot of other evidence, more photographs and more descriptions of everything that uh, Ryan found during his uh, uh, multiple trips to Saudi Arabia to these incredibly uh, difficult to, uh, to, to reach sites. Uh, places where most people are not allowed to go and uh, to see this incredible video evidence of so many of the stories of the book of Exodus. It is simply remarkable. So if you're looking for uh, a chance maybe to have your spirit um, regenerated, you really want to watch this video and go to Ryan. You can also just go to YouTube and search for it or Google it, Finding the Mountain of Moses, the real Mount Sinai in Saudi Arabia. It really may change your perspective on a lot of things. It's spectacular. Uh, Ryan, so congratulations to you on that, and we'll continue to talk about that as the weeks go by. But I do want to talk to you about some of the news of the day. And as I texted you uh, and set up our conversation today, I want to talk about uh, the president's decision to pull our troops out of Syria. I just had Claire Lopez on from the Center for Security Policy. She talked about how and why she disagrees with the president's position on this. Uh, obviously, the president's uh, uh, chief military personnel, including the defense secretary, as well as many of his national terrorism experts, have also disagreed with his decision to pull out of Syria. Uh, I need to find out how you see it, Ryan Morrow. What is your analysis of this decision and the president's willingness to part with so many of his top military and terrorism advisors over this call to bring 2,000 troops home? You know, i got to say, I think it's a disastrous decision. Um, and even if it wasn't a disastrous decision, the process of how it was made on such a whim based off of some brief input by the Turkish dictator Erdogan is really very disturbing. So everything about this story 
really shakes me to my core, I have to say. Um, I, I think that there is uh, already a darkness of jihadism within the Middle East and extending over to the Afghanistan-Pakistan area, and now there's a darker cloud that is going to descend upon it over the next few years if this decision is not reversed. Um, I, I expect troops to be pulled out of Iraq because the same logic for pulling 2,000 troops out of Syria and having, uh, have, you know, cutting our troops in half uh, for Afghanistan, and then reportedly the plan is to pull them all out at the end of next year. That same logic would obviously apply to Iraq. So um, it sounds like a full-scale withdrawal from the battlefield. And if that happens, uh, what you're going to have, uh, aside from genocide of Christians, Yazidis, and certainly the Kurds, and, and massive terrorist bases for groups linked to al-Qaeda and probably ISIS coming back, in addition to all that, what you'll have is the Taliban and al-Qaeda taking over Afghanistan, which very well could lead to the destabilization of Pakistan with all its nuclear weapons. In fact, I would say that's inevitable, that Pakistan could become, will become a failed state if that were to happen. Uh, it's spreading into Central Asia. The Iranian Shiite crescent uh, is established, along with multiple land bridges to Israel. And the Ottoman Caliphate is revived, whether they formally declare or not, uh, because that's Turkey's ambition. So all of the things that that's Erdogan's ambition is it not to be the Caliph? That's that's exactly what Erdogan sees himself as. That's exactly right. And so he's talking about unifying all the Turkish populations. Um, and when he does that, that would be kind of like a precursor to establishing the caliphate. Uh, so I think all of our allies are going to ditch us, except for maybe Israel. But I think even Israel's going to have to try to mend uh, the relationship with Russia, China, or somewhere else, because this is just such a horrible signal. So all of the disaster scenarios that we've been trying to prevent all of them become actualized if this decision actually is implemented. Ryan Morrow is our guest national security analyst at the Clarion Project, the Shulman Fellow for that organization as well. Um, what about Russia's role in all of this? Putin immediately congratulated and, and thanked President Trump for this decision. And we've long talked about Russia's uh, uh, alliance with uh, both Assad and uh, uh, the mullahs and the Ayatollah Khamenei in uh, Iran as well. Uh, what what benefit do they get out of this, Ryan? Well, Russia still operates from that Cold War model, so anything that involves the U.S. withdrawing militarily, economically, politically from a certain battlefield, particularly an area where they have an interest in, uh, is very good for them. So Putin, and if you look at the Russian propaganda outlets, they are just celebrating um, in a very, very dramatic, very big way um, that's disturbing. So they get to expand their military presence. They get to secure their access to the Mediterranean through Assad. Um, it takes away our ability to threaten Assad in the future, um, because it seems like some commentators say, well, if there's a problem, then we'll just go back. It's not that easy. No. Um, our military presence there is gathering intelligence. You have to set the stage for a lot of that. It's not like we, something happens and we can just snap our fingers and then we're back to where we were. Well, yeah, what bothers me about that, Ryan, and I've heard people say the same thing. I've been very, very critical of the president's decision on this, which upsets a lot of people because I am normally a supporter of the president. And I supported so many of the decisions he has made in the Middle East with respect to uh, getting out of the Iran nuclear deal. Uh, as he condemned, of course, the pallets of cash that we sent over to Iran. Uh, there, there's so many things he has done that are right. We have gone over there, and as I think his um, campaign promise was knock the hell out of ISIS. We have done that. But, but uh, what, what people 
people have said in, in response to that is, well, if we leave uh, and uh, things get bad and ISIS starts to reform, we'll just go back over there and do it again. And I'm thinking to myself, there are a lot of lives that are lost. There is a lot of blood that is spilled. There's a lot of money that is spent taking these territories in Syria and making sure that they are under control and ISIS cannot operate there. If we just give it to them, we've got to go back and fight for the same ground and spill new blood and spend new money on the same doggone ground that we just did. It makes no sense whatsoever to surrender hard-won territory in support of... Uh, you know the, the 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 civilians in the Middle East, obviously, and in Syria, and by a larger extent, because we stop ISIS from reforming there, it protects Americans both abroad and here at home. That's right. And each time we go through this process of beating them, but not quite defeating them, and then leaving and then coming back, it makes the enemy much stronger and us much weaker. Because then it it gives credence to that belief among the jihadists. Well, it may look like you're losing, but stick with it, because at the very last moment, the Americans are going to pull out, and Allah is going to rescue you. And that's a very, very bad perception to have out there. Um, but this is really going to reinforce that, because remember, the, the strength of each jihadist group rests not so much on clerical support or any type of logical arguments. It's about who wins on the battlefield. And that's why you've seen a collapse in support for ISIS, because by every measure, we've been kicking their butts. But if at this last point, when they only have 1% of their territory left, we prematurely leave, as as we're doing right now, and then they rejuvenate, then the next time you fight them, they're going to think about that same moment when they only had 1% left and they came back. And by the way, the end times prophecies that they believe they're fulfilling say that's exactly what happens, that they fight the enemy, it looks like they're losing, and at the very last moment, they're rescued and they win. Wow. That is, uh, that is a very troubling, uh, um, uh, point to make. And I, and I completely concur. Obviously, you have the expertise on, uh, what they, uh, uh, what they believe. And, uh, and that's very disturbing. Ryan, also disturbing is a story that you wrote for the Clarion Project about the president's incoming chief of staff. I'm going to ask you to hold on with me while we check our traffic one time here, take a short break. You can come in and tell us what we need to know about Mick Mulvaney, the White House budget director, who is also then going to be doubling as the president's chief of staff. Ryan, Morrow back with us for that part of the story next on AM 1420, The Answer. Okay, 1024. The Bob France Authority continues with Ryan Morrow, the uh, chairman of the Clarion Intelligence Network and the national security analyst for the Clarion Project. If you go to clarionproject.org, one of uh, Ryan's uh, most recent articles you're going to see is on White House, former White House, or well, current White House budget director and also incoming White House chief of staff, Mick Mulvaney, uh, that a lot of people like as a choice to replace General John Kelly. But he's got some very strange alliances, as uh, Ryan points out. And Ryan, I'll let you tell the story of Mick, Mul- Mick Mulvaney's relationship with um, uh, Jamal al-Fukra. Right, so Jamaat al-Fukra is this Pakistani-based terrorist group, uh, more like a cult, that operates within the United States, and they are known for having these communes across the country, like Islamburg, its headquarters in New York, and they're openly anti-Semitic. This isn't a case like CARE, where they do a good job of pretending to be moderate. They pretend to be moderate, but they, but it, they do a really, really bad job of it. Um, and so they haven't gotten much political and interfaith support like they've been trying to get but they have had one prominent political supporter 
And that's Mick Mulvaney, a congressman in South Carolina that is now Trump's chief of staff, um, who visited their Islamville compound in South Carolina that's been there since the 80s, which means back when the group was blowing up people, engaging in direct terrorist activity, this compound was there and part of the network that, that when it was terrorists, um, rather than nonviolent extremists or semi-violent. And he has basically said that everyone reporting on Fukra, uh, this group with the compounds, doesn't know what they're talking about. Why? Because he went and visited them. And ever since he went and he visited them in a visit that was pre-scheduled and they knew he was coming and they were with him every step of the way so they knew where he was walking to uh, within the compound, they got their pictures taken and he said that these are law-abiding citizens, which is factually incorrect. There's a lot of convicts within the group, so he's either lying or doesn't know basic facts. Uh, they've, they got their pictures taken with them and they've been using that as one of their chief propaganda pieces for years. And he's never backed down on that position. So what's the vetting process here? Who, who wants a chief of staff that can't get that right? That's terrifying, to be quite honest with you. And I'm, and I'm, and I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be very careful here because I, I, I don't want it to be misconstrued that I am a supporter of this president, because I am, uh, for many, many great things he has done in two years and many things that I think he would do if he can get some cooperation from the Congress going forward. And I don't want to say, I want it to sound like I'm piling on President Trump because of the Siri decision, which I disagree with, um, signing the, uh, uh, the uh, First Step Act, which, of course, uh, opens the prison doors for a lot of very bad people to come back to uh, communities and re-victimize them early. But this one has to be pointed out, too, Ryan. You're right. I mean, this is going to be the chief of staff. He's going to run the the West Wing, for crying out loud. And he has, obviously, a very fundamental misunderstanding of the dangers of, of uh, this cult, Jamad al-Fukra. And, and, and like you said, it's more than just him. Who vetted him? Does the president have anybody that, you know, going through the list of potential candidates for various high level positions, um, that is, that is going to turn these things up and say, you know, he's a strong believer in this, this radical Islamic extremist cult organization. Are you sure you want him in charge? I, I, that's, that's more troubling, I think, than, than, than his, Mulvaney's own history here itself. Yeah, I mean, the system is clearly broken. And the problem is that he so arrogantly, Mulvaney I'm talking of, uh, said that because he visited and met with the group, he could give them uh, basically a grade and say that they were fine. Oh, as if he's the expert on the group because he was the congressman in the local area and met with them and then said many false things, uh, factually incorrect things about the group. I mean, that is the bubble that we always fear congressmen are going to fall into. And that is the arrogance that leads to tremendous mistakes like that. And behind the scenes, I've been pushing to try to get Jamaat el-Fukra labeled as a foreign terrorist organization because their leadership is in Pakistan. They have an American network, but the leader is in Pakistan. And the money that they raise by brainwashing their followers in the United States, a lot of it goes over to Pakistan, and according to declassified documents I have, it then goes to other terrorist groups backed by Pakistani intelligence. And they're quite open about the fact that they have ties to other extremist groups in Kashmir and Pakistan. So I have a strong case. But how am I going to advance? It's been difficult enough if the chief of staff of the Trump administration is their most prominent defender. I mean, that's not going to go through. And so that big gap in our defenses, this very common sense measure, 
that I've been working on is not going to go forward with him there. This uh, also can be traced back to the last Republican president, at least to some extent. You write in your piece that the State Department included Fukra uh, in its annual terrorism report until 2000, which is when George W. Bush took over. Did the Bush administration also see Jamal al-Fukra as being a non-national security threat? Well, they said that they were inactive, that they had become dormant, uh, and so they didn't they were no longer included in these annual terrorism reports. They were never formally banned as a foreign terrorist group for reasons I don't understand. Um, but they were no longer included in these annual reports, and then that's because they were considered dormant. Uh, but the internal reports during the Bush administration and even the Obama administration, the private intelligence reports all express a deep concern about this group's terrorist history, its criminal history and ongoing connections to terrorist groups, including al-Qaeda affiliates overseas. And, and another thing that's amazing is that you have Mulvaney defending this group uh, that was in his area without contacting me or anyone else I know. There's not many people that study this group. In fact, I'm only aware of myself and, like, two others, but, uh, but I, I think I'm the only one that actually studies them uh, as part of my daily routine. Uh, I never heard from his office before he decided to go over to this terror tide compound and, and give them a clean bill of health and say that these are good guys. So he, did, so he didn't even take the first step to get the information he needed to prepare for this meeting with a jihadist group. Wow. You know, the president always said he's going to hire the very best people, uh, and apparently he's uh, not taking very good care to do that. And not only that, he's not consulting with some of the best experts in the field like you on this matter, uh, based on uh, this this decision to uh, to put Mulvaney in charge of his chief uh, in charge of his entire staff in the West Wing. Ryan, very disturbing, but very important to know. I'm going to share that story everywhere that I can, and I hope you continue to share it as well. Ryan Morrow, National Security Analyst at the Clarion Project. Uh, and Ryan, and don't forget, visit his website, Sinai in Arabia, SinaiInArabia.com, and watch this 25-minute documentary of proof, uh, or at least uh, what many believe to be proof, of the uh, Book of Exodus leading to Mount Sinai in Saudi Arabia, not in Egypt or Jordan or anywhere else. It's simply spectacular. So visit that and watch that documentary. Ryan Morrow, thank you so much and Merry Christmas again. Merry Christmas. Thank you. You got it. There you go. That's Ryan Moore on AM 1420. The answer, let's get news now. The Bob France Authority back after this. Progressive Democrats, please be aware you have now entered the place where political correctness goes to die. This is the Bob France Authority on AM 1420. The answer. We're rolling along at 1036, 24 minutes of outstanding awesome and anal- awesome analysis rather uh, coming your way. If you want to be a part of that analysis, uh, dial up. We are guest free the rest of the way, 216-901-0945 and 888-281-1110. Either one of those numbers will get you here. If you would like to follow me on Twitter or Facebook, you can do so, despite my disdain for both platforms. At Radio Done Right or France Radio. Radio Done Right, all one word. France Radio is F-R-A-N-T-Z Radio. Again, also one word. No spaces, no underscores. I want to go back to Ohio uh, for a moment or two and get away from the national and international politics and uh, terrorism uh, uh, policies and so on and so forth. In one of his very last acts, as the phony Republican phony conservative governor of the state of Ohio, 
John Kasich decided to say no to life once again. Not just this this bill. There were a number of other things that he vetoed, including expanded benefits for the survivors of um, police officers, firefighters, family members of uh, police officers and firefighters who lose their lives in the line of duty, or just retirement benefits, expanded uh, services for them. Governor John Kasich, uh, who cannot get out of office fast enough for the taste of many of us, decided to also veto the heartbeat bill. Ohio Value Voters put out a statement about this that I want to share with you now because I agree with it in its entirety. Ohio Value Voters and pro-life people throughout the state of Ohio and the nation urged Governor John Kasich to permit the heartbeat bill to become law. Ohioans were saddened on Friday to learn that instead of acting in a statesmanlike manner and signing the bill that is the clear will of the people, he vetoed it. And once again, like two years ago, demonstrated his situational political position with the lives of the unborn. On the same day, he signed into law Senate Bill 145 that prohibits doctors from performing dilation and uh, evacuation abortions. An abortion method when women are between 13 and 24 weeks pregnant. Dilation abortion involves tearing the child apart limb by limb so that the body parts can then be extracted from the womb. Now the question is why? Why did John Kasich veto the heartbeat bill and sign into law Senate Bill 145? Recent political history may provide the answer. Three years ago when Kasich was running for President of the United States, he responded to a pro-choice question by a woman while she was campaigning, while he was campaigning rather in the New Hampshire primary. When she asked Kasich his position on abortion, Kasich responded by saying Roe versus Wade was the law of the land and said we live with the law of the land. Kasich's comment, we live with the law of the land, is of great concern when dealing with the moral issue of abortion. When considering the immoral practice of slavery in our country, if Kasich had been governor of Ohio in 1857, after the Dred Scott Supreme Court decision, would he have stated then, we live with the law of the land? Or would he have signed legislation into law to protect the moral rights of those enslaved? The governor has announced he is considering another run in 2020 for president. Kasich's situational political position to satisfy pro-choice voters, pro-abortionists, was with a veto of the heartbeat bill. His signing of Senate Bill 145 into law was to satisfy pro-life voters and may answer the original question, why did he veto the heartbeat bill and sign into law Senate Bill 145? How can he have both positions? The Ohio House and Senate must override Kasich, override the veto of the heartbeat bill. Make it a matter of law. Stop allowing assassins, and that's my word, no one else's, but someone who takes the life in such a way of another human, another being, is an assassin. Stop these assassins masquerading as medical professionals from just taking the lives of innocent babies before they have a chance to take their first breath of outside air. Stop them from doing this. And if you want to say, and I understand the argument, of course, on this side too, that a baby's not a baby when it's just a blob of cells 
in the first day or two or week or so of pregnancy, if you do not believe, and I understand a lot of people who do feel this way, that that's not life beginning at truly at conception, you cannot deny, no matter who you are, that another life exists inside of the mother when there is a second heartbeat. If doctors can separate and and distinctly tell there are two heartbeats, now you have two people. There is no other way to look at this. This isn't just protoplasm. This isn't just cells clumped together. This is a living, heart-beating being who has rights like everyone else. How John Kasich could not at least sign that into law and say when there is a separate being there, because no human being lives with two hearts. To my knowledge, it's never happened. If it has, it's some sort of a strange anatomical aberration that probably ended very, very badly. But human beings have one heart. When there's a second heartbeat detected, there is a life. There is a human being inside that mother's body. How that cannot be signed into law, I have no earthly idea. But but, uh, John Kasich is trying to play both sides of the aisle, trying to win the support of pro-lifers, by signing Senate Bill 145 on on, uh, dilation and extraction or evacuation, as they call it, and, of course, by siding with the pro-choicers on the heartbeat bill. The Ohio House and Senate must override the v- the uh, Kasich veto. Ohio Value v- Voters urges you to take some critical, make some critical calls rather today, and urge the Republicans in the House and Senate to override the Kasich veto of the heartbeat bill. I completely concur, and thank you so much uh, to uh, um, uh, Diane and John Stover who are working so hard to spread the word and spread the message about this. We have to act now, and we really do. Call Ohio House Speaker Ryan Smith. Thanks again to the Stovers for putting the Ohio Value Voters. For putting this out there, but call Ohio House Speaker Ryan Smith at 614-466-1366 to demand uh, a vote to allow the uh, the overriding of the veto. And then also the Senate President Larry Abhoff at 614-466-7505. That's 614-466-7505. They may have enough votes to override that veto, and that's something they should do, because that is simply, and at Christmas time too, no less. I'm so proud to say that my kids uh, are going, what is the date? I don't have the date. I think it's next month, though. Or is it next? Yeah, I think it is next month. I don't think it's February. I think it's January. When is the March for Life? I think it's next month. But both of my kids will be on a bus with their school, their Catholic school, proudly going out there in support of life uh, at the March for Life in Washington, D.C. The least we can do here in the state of Ohio is continue to pound on the leadership in Columbus to make sure that at, at least in our state, uh, we recognize life. Even if we cannot get them to admit and acknowledge life beginning at conception, we can certainly get them to agree that life begins when there is a second heartbeat and thus a second living being inside that womb who is entitled to uh, protections as well. So uh, if you've got thoughts on that, again, 216-901-0945 and 888-281-1110. All right, uh, I want to get into a couple of other things, so I'm going to take my break a little bit early here. We'll get our final check of our traffic and time out, and I want to come back. And if you've got calls to make, you can do that now, 216-901-0945. Otherwise, I've got a couple of other thoughts for you on another tragic death of a migrant in custody of the U.S. Border Patrol and the sickening, disgusting politicization of that death by the American left. I'm going to talk about that coming up as we continue on AM 1420, The Answer.
1049 now. We continue on AM 1420, The Answer. Appreciate you joining us this morning. Hopefully, again, you had a wonderful Christmas, and you have a wonderful Christmas week still to come the rest of the way until uh, New Year's as well. And uh, look forward. By the way, tomorrow, uh, tomorrow morning, uh, it'll be a France-a-thon again because I'm going to be sitting in for Hugh Hewitt from 6 to 9 a.m. prior to our regular two-hour visit with one another here. So from 6 to 11 tomorrow, uh, kind of a mini France-a-thon uh, on AM 1420, The Answer. Hopefully you can tune in wherever you might be. And by the way, speaking of that, I know a lot of people got the new uh, Amazon devices for Christmas this year. I saw a story earlier today said literally millions more were sold than were last year, talking about the Amazon Echo and the Amazon uh, Dot, I guess. That's the smaller version of the Echo. I have the Echo in my house. Um, at any rate, uh, that means millions of more opportunities for people to listen to AM 1420, The Answer. Just make sure you enable the uh, uh, AM 1420, The Answer skill for your Amazon Echo or Echo Dot, okay? And then all you'll have to do, uh, wherever you might be, wherever that is in your home, wherever you've got it plugged in, is just say, hey, Alexa, play um, uh, play The Answer Cleveland is actually the code. Play The Answer Cleveland, and it will automatically tune in to AM 1420, The Answer, whether it's this show or Prager show or uh, uh, Medved show or Dr. Gorka's show after the first of the year or Larry Elder, whatever the case might be. So make sure. Uh, that you do indeed enable that and just say, hey, Alexa, or just say, Alexa, play the answer, Cleveland. So I want to share this story with you uh, because this is what the media does. The media likes to lie. They like to, um, uh, to distort the truth, and they like to somehow uh, por- pretend that deaths of migrant children in the hands of Border Patrol are the responsibility of Border Patrol, and it's the responsibility of Donald Trump. And all of those who want a wall, and all of those who don't want to let these poor immigrants into the United States undetected whenever they want to come in. This is tragic. Make no mistake about it. But the death of the young boy is not the big part of the story here. That's awful. We all agree. There is no contention on that. There's no right and left. There's no right and wrong. It's just all wrong that a young boy died. The story here and the controversy comes in as to why the young boy died. Here's a Fox News report. Customs and Border Protection said in a statement that Monday they took the boy and his father to a hospital in Alamo Gordo, New Mexico. The eight-year-old had a fever and was given an antibiotic before he was discharged. But hours later, he started vomiting. They took him back to the hospital where he died. Jorge Mario Cabrera with the Coalition for Humane Immigrants' Rights says they doubt CBP's version of events. We have in previous instances found irregularities that are constant in the care of these migrants. California Democrat Congressman Lou Correa asked the Homeland Security Secretary on Twitter, after two child deaths in a month, what's going on at DHS? What's going on at DHS is that they are trying their level best to do their jobs, which is to protect the border of the United States of America and to provide something that the parents of these migrant children didn't provide. Care, nourishment, medicine, health. The idea that Kirsten Nielsen can be blamed for the de- or anybody else in the United States Department of Homeland Security or in the Trump administration can be blamed for the incredible mistreatment of these kids by their parents, dragging them through 1,000 miles of heat and, and, and incredibly difficult conditions of Mexico and then hundreds of more miles through an American desert. Once they illegally cross the border, 
Kids becoming malnourished, kids becoming dehydrated, kids not having uh, uh, their immune system strengthened. It opens them up to all kinds of potential problems, health problems. And now for the second time in two weeks, one of these children has died, despite the best efforts of Border Patrol, Customs Enforcement, and medical personnel all working together to try to save these kids from what their parents have put them through. They have died. And the left wants to politicize this and take a bite out of the Trump administration. Donna Brazil, remember I talk, talked about her? She's the one who helped engineer the theft of debates from Bernie Sanders by leaking debate questions to Hillary Clinton in advance. Is on Twitter calling this unacceptable, disgraceful. Nielsen must resign. Trump must be held accountable. Well, I'll, I've said it before and I'll say it again. If a child is involved in a house fire and is burned over 50% of her body and is rushed to the burn ward of a hospital or the emergency ward and they do everything they can to save the child but are unsuccessful, do the headlines read, child dies in custody of burn unit? When another child is caught in the crossfire of a Cleveland gang shooting, and is rushed to the hospital, and emergency surgery is performed, sadly, unsuccessfully, and the child dies. Do the headlines read, child dies in care of Cleveland Clinic or University Hospital? Or in custody of, rather? It's their fault they didn't do enough to save the child? Do we blame the doctors? No, we blame the people shooting the bullets. And in this case, we blame the people putting the children in very, very deleterious health care conditions. An eight-year-old Guatemalan boy died while in U.S. custody and border protection. Early Christmas morning, the agency announced on Tuesday. Once agents noticed the child showing symptoms of illness, the father and his son were promptly transferred to the Gerald Champion Regional Medical Center. The child was initially diagnosed with a common cold. And then evaluated for release, hospital, uh, then when evaluated for release, the hospital staff found a fever. The boy was released after further observation with prescriptions for amoxicillin and ibuprofen, typically used to treat these symptoms. Later that day, the child was forced to go back to the hospital when he exhibited nausea and vomiting. The child passed away after midnight on Tuesday. The cause of death remains unknown, but I can doggone tell you what I, what I suggested and suspected is these children are in very, very poor health because of the conditions they've been subjected to, not by U.S. Customs and Border Patrol, but by their parents. And dare I say, by American Democrats. Wait, what? Bob, what are you saying, by American Democrats? If you're not blaming Border Patrol, how can you blame them? Because their refusal to build a deterrent Their refusal to provide funding to build a giant wall which would deter these people from making that trek from Guatemala or from El Salvador or from Honduras or any of that trio of countries there to the south of Mexico, their refusal to provide a deterrent encourages more of these attempts, which leads to these terribly tragic situations. So earlier this month, a seven-year-old girl and now an eight-year-old boy both Guatemalans died while, quote, in CBP custody. 
therefore making this a border patrol problem. It is not a border patrol problem, and it should go. It should be pointed out too that the child of the girl from a week and a half ago, or excuse me, the child of the girl. Let me say that again: the father of the child, the father of the girl, in the story a week and a half ago, declared that the border patrol and the medical personnel did everything they could for his daughter. He had no problems whatsoever with the care his child received. It was sad and tragic that she died, but they di- he did not blame them, and with good reason. And if the parent of this child, this boy that uh, died yesterday, shortly after midnight on Christmas, is honest, they will admit the same thing. This is a tragic situation, but one that was not caused by the U.S., by our border policies, by our Border Patrol, by ICE, by Donald Trump, by Kirsten Nielsen, or anyone else. This was a decision made by parents. They knew it was going to be risky. They knew it would be traumatic for their children's health. And they made the decision to make the run anyway. And here we sit. So that's the the second to last part of the story. Here's the last part of the story. While you won't be able to read that story often enough in the mainstream news, because that's the narrative they want to advance, here's a story you won't see unless you go hunting for it. A Rio Grande Valley Sector Border Patrol agent dove into the Rio Grande River to save a drowning migrant over the same weekend. That's right. Borstar, which is the Border Patrol Search, Trauma, and Rescue agent or agents, they noticed a migrant jump into the water, try to swim toward a raft to make a run for the border or to the other side of the river, noticed him going under for a long period of time, realized he was drowning, One agent dove in, searched for him, found him, dragged him to the surface, and dragged him to safety. Find that story tomorrow. Find that story on Friday. Find that story next week. You will never hear about it. What you will continue to hear for those days is the children who died in U.S. custody. That's it. That's all the time that I've got. I had to share that with you before we were done. If I left you on hold, I'm sorry, but I got on a roll. Stay where you are. Mike Gallagher's coming up next. We'll see you tomorrow. Enjoy the silence. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.